I am praying for you constantly. I'm praying that you do not lose heart. Because sometimes, sometime after November the 8th, political ads will be a thing of the past. I think that the ugly side of politics will at least be reduced to some degree. I'm praying because we will have elected a new president who will not be the perfect choice, whoever gets elected. And I'm praying because God will use him or her anyway. I'm praying that our nation will survive not only the campaigns, but whoever is elected. I'm praying this not for just now, but for the years to come, because I believe and have a hope in my heart that someday in the future, we may actually have an election where someone is elected to lead our country, and it may be the kind of person that an overwhelming majority of our nation will get behind. Irregardless of party affiliation, perhaps they will have none. But we'll rather be that person that will so inspire us by who they are and how they live and what they believe and the gifts and graces that God has given them that we will all feel the breath of God upon their life and upon our nation. Someday in the future, I believe that's going to happen. but it has not yet. And sometimes I feel like as I grow older, every year becomes a little more divisive in our political elections. And that bothers me. And there are times when I feel like as I contemplate my choice this year, particularly perhaps, it makes you think about giving up hope for the future. But then you remember that the present realities we live through in this world are not predictive nor determinative about all that shall happen in our futures. And we are not a group of people who are stuck in the present or stuck in the past. But rather, we are a group of people who understand that there is yet a future for those who lean into it, for those who claim it, for those who hope for it, for those who live in such a way that that future will become a reality. You'll notice in the lessons from Luke that we were covering that this week we're going to start at chapter 18 and we skip the last half of chapter 17. But you cannot really get into chapter 18 without at least taking a snapshot of what is being said according to the Gospel of Luke, beginning with verse 19 and going on, or verse 20 actually, and going through the rest of that chapter, a half of a book, if you will, half of a chapter. You see, in that chapter, Luke is writing about something that we're all familiar with, especially in this day and age. He is talking about what we're facing in life, and we are all very curious about that. Where is the future headed? In which direction are we going is always of importance to us. And it's always been something of importance to us in regard to the biblical text as well. But in this day and age, it's even more so 
because of the recent centuries and the emphasis that it has placed upon the biblical interpretation of two key passages in Scripture. This, these verses, beginning in Luke 17, beginning with verse 20, are a shorter version of what also appears in the Gospel of Matthew and in one verse in 1 Thessalonians. And each of these sayings point us toward where history is heading and play upon the idea of biblical prophecy, and it's alive and well today. But text 17 and 20 is taking biblical prophecy very seriously and leading into what is said about it in verse 18, recognizing in chapter 17 that biblical prophecy and its understanding is always partially about speculation. There is no biblical text of itself, and even in taken with the rest of the word, that lays out a clear and prophetic reality whereby we can track history and know at which minute and which moment Jesus will return. There simply is no such thing. You say, well, Pastor, do you know how many books are about, read about that in the Christian bookstore? Yes, I do. And I'm telling you, if they make a conclusion, then they are smarter than Jesus because he did not speculate about what time the Father would call that moment. You say, well, what do you mean? I'm saying, save your money. Now, some of you are going to get feeling a little irritated now because you have bought, learned, and studied all the notes in the Schofield Reference Bible. And let me remind you, that's a 20th century reality, not a 1st, 2nd, or 3rd century reality. Biblical notes are good to have, but as they are talked about in theological circles, they are not always faithful to all of the text because every human is flawed. Our future may not be clear, but it is serious and it is important to us to speculate it within what the context of Scripture says. The eschatological text does not solve our curiosities because it simply cannot. The word rapture is a dispensational theological concept that was first voiced clearly in the 18th century by a man whose last name was Darwin. This idea of the rapture brings about into the American concept the idea that before Jesus comes to return, that the believers will usually meet him in the air. They will be lifted up. They will be rise to meet Jesus in the air who's coming to straighten out the earth. That is called predispensational theology. And trust me, if you want to be a dispensationalist, that's the one you want to be. Post-dispensationalists believe that Jesus will return before all the elect are gathered up, and that's not a pretty sight. And you don't want to be alive for that event. You want to be gone. Already you see that they don't even agree with the biblical text about whether pre- or post-dispensationalism is biblically accurate. Many scholars and most of the mainline denominations do not take the whole of dispensational theology as fact, although they recognize there are phrases that causes us to speculate about such things. This idea of meeting Jesus in the air sounds pretty good to me. And I used to think and still want to think kind of that that'll happen right before the day that I was going to die anyway. You know, and I'll miss all that dying stuff. I'll just wake up and be gone, you know. 
Except I'll be gone and I'll be turning around and coming right back. It sounds good to me. I like that thought. But I do not believe that the biblical texts really pursue that thought very much. Like I said, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and Matthew 24, verses 1 through 44, are the two verses that talk about this reality, the two sections of Scripture. These verses in Luke 17, at the conclusing part of that chapter, are a smaller version of Matthew, a shorter one, if you will, about the same idea. Now, after John popularized this discussion in the 18th century, in the 19th century, along came the uh, more popular idea. I'm sorry, it was, it was talked about in the 18th century and popularized in the 19th century by John Darby. And then in the 20th century, with the writing of the reference notes in the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, which are a trademark of Dallas Theological Seminary, and, uh, of course, the Schofield Reference Bible has many readers, it has become common knowledge for people to know at least that much about the Bible. And, in fact, a lot of people who don't know a whole lot about the Bible love to buy the books on biblical prophecy because we're all curious, right? We would like to know when Jesus is going to return because just in case we haven't been doing all we could, we'd like to start the door bef- day before he returns, right? We'd like to get serious right about that point. We don't want to be left behind. whole lot. Actually, that should be a title of a book series or something, Left Behind. You probably didn't, but I did read every one of them. Uh, I found some of them to be very plausible and, and to match with Scripture in ways that were very exciting. But I never did believe that they were Scripture and put in book form, although they make many biblical Scripture references that had me flying through the pages, book after book after book. Uh, the first ones were the better ones, by the way. Now, why not so much of that today? Because what happens in the Gospel of Luke, and according to that writer, in verse 18, right after talking about these last things, what we find are verses that are meant to instruct us, that are meant to guide us in what we believe and how we live. While he was telling them a parable to show that, not, that at all times they ought to pray, it's important to remember that, and not to lose heart. Because in the face of the unknown of the future, those two things are critically important. And then he told them this story about this comical figure, this judge who doesn't respect God our man, this judge who doesn't want to rule in favor of this persistent widow, but because she keeps on bothering him, he listens to her prayer. And in that context, set in context with the idea of the return of God to the earth in the man Jesus, we have the same kind of thing. We keep asking, when is it going to happen? We keep asking, when is Jesus going to completely rule the earth? And in that is an important theological concept that we must pursue. It's not enough to be satisfied with curiosity that there is some kind of timetable. It's not enough to be satisfied that just thinking about the event is important to us. But rather, what we should be asking ourselves is, what do we do in the interim? In the time between when some of the kingdom of God was made manifest on the earth and between the time that later on in the futuristic sense that someday the kingdom of God will complete the earth and all that are within it. When you think about that interim time of history, it becomes crucially important to our faith. And that's what he's addressing in Luke 18. And he says you need to be constantly in prayer and you need to not lose heart. 
in our world, as in the world then, there are always things going on in our world, injustices, if you will, just like the widow is talking about. There are a lot of times when we look at things going on in our lives and we think the bad guys are winning. How is that possible? We pray for God to come and strike down that which is evil and to free that which is good. We pray for God to take our side in arguments from the assumption that we are the righteous one and others are not. Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, the forgiveness of sins, these are all present realities because the kingdom has already come to earth but not yet in its fullness. If you could see it in a scope of time, if you can lay parallel the lines that were once showed to me a long, long time ago in seminary that helped me with a concept that was important, there are two lines running parallel. For one line, it starts off the end of the page, and it goes on forever, and it goes as far as you can see to the right in the same way. But underneath it, a new line starts at some point and becomes earthly history, and that view of time is going forward, and we're right in it right now. It's somewhere on that line. And it kind of parallels with a line that comes down from the first down to the bottom line, a tie between eternity and earthly life, if you will, and that line is Jesus. And when Jesus came and lived on the earth and died and was raised and went to heaven, now the two lines are running parallel until the time comes when the bottom line on earth, as we know it, will cease and the top line will go on as Jesus eternally manifests his kingdom in its fullness and in its power. And we yearn for that on our best days. We yearn for the righteousness of this of heaven to be the righteousness of earth. But in the middle of it, sometimes, man, it's such a mess. You cannot turn on a news channel now. It will make your soul soiled. It is, it is unbelievable what's going on in that political race. But that's not really news to us because it is unbelievable what's happening around your children and your youth in the school in which they attend these days. It is unbelievable the mouth on some of our young adults in this country. All you have to do is go into a store where a lot of them are hanging out and they don't think, or maybe they even think, you're listening and listen to their conversation. We are a long way as a nation and as a people from where God wants us to be. Is there anyone here who wouldn't agree with that? I didn't think I needed to preach about that long. We're kind of a mess right now in many ways. I mean, and yet we have hope, right? Yesterday I did two marriages in one day. One here, one in McKinney. I don't know that I'd ever done two before in one day. I'm not, I'm not recommending that as a product either. But the reality was both of those young couples stood in front of me. Both of them shared their vows. Both of them made pledges to the life they hoped to live together. And their minds at that point are starry-eyed, star-filled, and they're looking at one another and using such words that are just precious. And you just watch it, and you just kind of soak it in, and then you go, yeah, I did that 43 and a half years ago. Boy, there's a lot that's happened from that starry-filled moment until 43 and a half years later. Not all of it's good because, you know, Sally's not perfect. Of course, now that she's been gone to Tyler since longer than I can remember and probably is going to be there most of the time in the near future, I, I, she's more perfect than she was when she left. <laughs> Curiosity for the future and holding on to the, to the future that's coming someday 
is an important aspect of being a, a Christian. We claim the presence of the kingdom. We see it in the acts of forgiveness we experience ourselves. We witness to the victory of Jesus upon the cross and the resurrected to eternal life. We believe that we see the kingdom of God and the reign of righteousness alive in the church at times as a whole and as individual churches at different points in times when we really live up to who we are. We see that and we take heart at it. When the church is an instrument of service and faithfulness, we are proud of it. I'm proud to know that some of you who had not planned before are now planning to come Saturday and help with the Harvest Fair. Attendance is down a little as far as volunteers go. And I understand that. But you know what I've learned about this congregation, what I've seen for over three years, is you as a congregation respond better and more faithfully than any congregation I've ever pastored in terms of when you are needed for help in some way, you come forth. And you say, Pastor, that's not fair to put that on me. I have other plans tomorrow. (laughs) I, I know you may have, but maybe you need to change them. I don't know. I just know that you've always been faithful as a congregation. We've invited the community to a party, and Miss Cindy J., who served you all these years, says she needs a few more servants. I expect you to find them. I expect them to show up. And if it happens to be you that has to lay something down, I'm confident you'll do it. And you said, well, well, you shouldn't be so confident. But I am because I've known you for three and a half years. I've watched you, and I believe in your faithfulness. And faithfulness is exactly what this passage is about, and it does so in a sneaky way. It does so in a sneaky way. The last verse that we read from this chapter is part of that sneaky way. He talks about, won't God bring about justice for you if you just keep crying out for it? And, of course, the the implication is yes. And then he says, I will tell you, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, you've got to be careful about these however words. However, when the Son of Man comes, he asks this question. Will he find faith on the earth? Wow, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Seems to be a doubt. It seems to be not a given. It seems to be something that's in doubt. And then I start thinking about the temptations we deal with on a regular basis. I start thinking about how hard it is to live the Christian life. I start thinking about what it's like to suffer injustice. And it's a real recent feeling for me. I've been a part of something that I felt like was unjust from the beginning. At least for the last year and a half. So have you. We felt like and we've cried out to God. And I was expecting about a, you know, 30-day answer. Turned into a year and a half. But I nor you quit praying about what we felt like was unjust. Did we? We waited, hopefully, believing that God would redeem us. There are things that happen in our lives that feel unjust to us, either personally or communally, that we just have to live through sometimes, calling upon God to bring about righteousness and judgment. 
And we are called to be faithful in the midst of those times. It was not always easy, and it is not always easy, to remain faithful in the midst of something that is hurting you very deeply, that is wounding you as an individual or as a congregation. We know it happens all the time. It happens on jobs. It happens in workplaces. It happens in families. It happens in churches. It happens everywhere. And every time it happens, we struggle to some degree with our faith. We struggle sometimes and other people at what other people say about the church because their memories are not of the many good things about the church, but rather their memories are of negative things in the church. And we struggle with them. We don't know how to respond because we don't look at it like they look at it. So what are we to do? It's really complicated. We are to pray at all times. We are to be persistent in praying about the injustices of our earth until Jesus returns and rights all injustice. We are to continue to pray for what's right, and at the same time, we are to live with hope and trust that God will redeem even those situations on earth that look irredeemable. We are also to not lose heart. We are not to give up. And the church of all places is a place where we have to cling to hope. We have to wrap ourselves around it. We have to convince ourselves in the face of much evidence that the earth's mission is not yet finished, that God is not yet through with his church. That not, God has not given up on us, but we have to wait with hope and believe that God will stir up the church again. That instead of declining, we will all begin to thrive. Not just one denomination, not just one place, but across the earth that the word of God will once again become the most powerful influence in the society in which we live, which we cannot claim at this point. We need to be reinvigorated with the faith we claim, so that the hope becomes visible and seen for everyone who comes in touch with us. I don't have a whit of hope for Hillary. If she's president, I don't have a whit of hope for much. I don't have a whit of hope if Trump is going to be president either. Well, one's first name, I don't know how that works, but anyway, those are what they go by, right? But I do have hope in the one who can work through anybody who's the ruler of a country. And that one is Jesus Christ. And whoever is elected, they're not going to be a great prize. I'm just saying what you already know, right? Now, if you're here and you really are believe that Trump is a prize or you really believe that Hillary is a prize, God bless you. You, you, you have more hope or faith than I can identify with because there's ample evidence of both of them that they're flawed. And, and that's the only thing about the presidential campaign that's consistent is we are good at showing up everyone's flaws, and we always act surprised that anyone's that flawed. I don't know why. We look in the mirror every day. Nobody, nobody is without flaws. But will he find faith when he returns? That is like saying, are we going to be faithful in the interim? Because one person or another gets elected for president, are we going to move to Australia? I'm not. Are you going to move somewhere else? Nope. I'm going to wait for the next election, pray for the president that's the one who's leading us, and pray that he listens to the one who may be more 
uh, powerful than they even imagine in their life. Therefore, whatever they have received, that it will become more. That's what I'm going to do because I love and believe in this nation much more than I believe in any one particular leader because this nation is not about an elected leader, although they are important. It's about us. We are the people who are United States citizens. We are the people who are responsible for where our nation goes. And we are the people who elect all of the politicians. Nobody gets appointed to any job that's very important. Now, unless you're watching that TV show, uh, what is it, The Last Survivor or Designated Survivor, that poor sucker got appointed to a cabinet job and everybody else got killed when the White House got bombed and uh, so he became the president. Now, he wasn't voted upon and it's a real problem already in that show. And you can tell I'm watching it every week just to see how that mess unfolds. <laughs> it's kind of brainless activity. It's a good rest for my brain, so I turn it on and watch it. It's frightening of how people are behaving on that show, but not beyond my imagination because I'm old enough to have experienced a lot of people, a lot of situations where people lived in ways that left me speechless and not in a good sense. But I'm also old enough to have met a lot of people who have also left me speechless in a good sense. The world has both kinds. So do not lose hope in our nation. Do not stay at home because there's not a perfect choice. As one person told me when I was griping about it on one of my bad days, they said, you don't get to stay home. You have to vote. They were right. And I always do. And I'm always going to vote. And so should you. And we should not lose hope in our country. We should not lose hope in the redemption of either or both of those candidates. Because we are the people who are about redemption. We must remain faithful. Will Jesus find faith when he returns? We want to be able to say he will if he returns to this spot. Because we're going to be faithful. But now, the next verse, when I preach to you again, which will be in two Sundays, Nick is bringing the message next Sunday on poor little Zacchaeus. And, and then I'm going to backtrack when I get back on the 30th, and I'm going to take up on that self-righteous thing that comes in chapter 18 and the humility that's required to be a follower of Jesus. But until that time, I want you to do two things. This is going to shock you. I want you to pray without ceasing. And I don't want you just praying for being well or having a great job. I want you to pray about the nation. I want you to pray about people who don't know Jesus. I want you to pray for Jesus to return in individual circumstances as well as for the kingdom of God to continue to happen on earth. We can't cause it to happen, but we can work toward its happening. We can be a part of that kingdom worth right now. Pray about it. And secondly, don't you dare lose hope. Don't you dare. Court trials get over. Personal animosities can be melted away between people. New opportunities can await us in the future that are greater than the ones we've had in the past. Forgiveness is possible for us all. We must not lose hope in that. Because if we as the church do, then when Jesus returns, where will he find hope?
We are people of hope.